Welcome back to the EcoDoc podcast. My name's Will Little. I'm a GP and a farmer. And the conversation today is with Dr. Jonathan Groom, who's an anaesthetist in London. And Jonathan has been instrumental in setting up an organisation called GASP, which is helping to make the NHS a greener organisation. And he's going to tell us more about that today. So, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to talk to me today. I'd just like to ask you to describe what GASP is and and what it does. So um, we're a multidisciplinary volunteer organisation that we set up about six years ago um, in response to the fact that we were initially two anaesthetists getting quite frustrated with the amount of waste that we are generating within within our day-to-day practice. And then with a little bit of digging, you start, we started to realise how much of an impact the healthcare system that we work within does have on the environment. So we set up an organisation to tackle that. And now there are about 80 of us worldwide all working towards our mission statement, and that is to reduce the environmental impact of healthcare from the UK and beyond. Fantastic. So what got you involved in this area? Well, we kind of fell into it by mistake, really. I, I was initially doing a quality improvement training course and um, my initial project which I was very excited about um, all fell apart quite quickly (laughs) so I was told to go away over lunch and um, have a think about something that I'm passionate about and something that I want to see see where where I'd like to see some changes in my day-to-day work and I was pretty eco-conscious in my general life anyway and I was making changes towards my home life but I'd get frustrated when I'd come to work and I'd see all of the all the stuff that we are effectively throwing in the bin, all the single-use products, all of the waste we are generating. So I had a look around and I found an organisation that were willing to take used oxygen masks, anaesthetic masks and PVC tubing and turn them into tree ties for the horticultural industry. So I thought, well, this is a good project. Brought it back to the um, to the quality improvement team and um, they thought, yeah, we, we, we can run with this. So I got in touch with um, the sustainability department at Bart's Health and we started to get this project off the ground, myself and another anaesthetist. And we realised quite quickly the amount of bureaucracy, the amount of um, well, stakeholder buy-in that you needed really to get these sort of projects off the ground. It took us about six months to get two bins in place. Um, but after a lot of work and a lot of training and a lot of um, enthusiasm from the people that we were working with, we eventually managed to and collect and divert about half a ton of PVC um, from an incinerable waste stream and got it um, downcycled into tree ties for the horticultural industry. But as we're training, we realised that we are going to soon, we soon we're going to rotate onto different hospitals out of the trust. And we wanted to create something, an organisation that's going to be able to continue these projects and start up other projects. So I think we, we initially called ourselves the Greener Anesthesia Group, uh, but then realised the acronym GAG was pretty pretty unpleasant. Um, sounds a bit like we'd uh, taken a COVID test, which fortunately we weren't doing at the time. It was six years ago. Yeah. Um, I, and then um, with some much cleverer people than I am, than I than myself, um, someone came up with GASP, the Greener Anesthesia and Sustainability Project. And I think we realised even even now looking back, even though the name's quite catchy and we got ourselves a nice logo and stuff, it doesn't necessarily represent who we are today because while we were initially a group of anaesthetists we realised that to get any of these projects off the ground and tackle this huge issue that is healthcare emissions, you need to be as collaborative as possible. So we're very multidisciplinary in our approach now, and 
with um, I mean this just this morning I was talking to a group of dentists we've got medical students psychiatrists psychologists GPs people we, we've recently had some someone join who um, used to work for the medical device industry and is now um, looking at ways of greening that up so we're really branching out trying to uh, using a broad church approach because we think that's the best way to tackle the issue yes it, it, it's really impressive the fact that you've got so many people going so it's been going about six years now. And what were the kind of major challenges you faced uh, in going forward? You've talked a bit about the bureaucracy, which I can understand. Were there any other things that you had to overcome in order to get this organisation moving? Well, I think initially with the first project, it was not necessarily the sort of project that we would, that trainees would be doing at that point in time. Most Most clinical training projects would be to do with patient safety or clinical care. So my clinical leaders were a bit confused about why I was spending so much time in the bins and um, getting quite obsessed, obsessed with that side of things. But then on the other side, the healthcare estates teams were equally fathomed at um, a clinician's interest in, in their domain. So just trying to link those two things together was initially a bit of a challenge. Um, and then once we got that project off the ground and running and, and the, the challenges that we faced in setting up GASP, have actually been it's it's become more challenging as as gasp has grown i think initially when we were set up we were um there, there was you know, a, a handful of enthusiastic people that wanted to join it was quite local and it was quite easy to manage and now when we're growing into a size of sort of you know 80 plus as we are all over the world um that's now becoming quite a challenge to manage and, for, and almost like a full-time job for which I have no time <laughs> allocated to. So we're, this year we're looking to have a bit of a rethink about the way that we structure our um, management and leadership side of GASP. Um, yes. So that, that's probably our biggest challenge that we're facing at the moment. Because you're not yet a consultant, I don't think, and you're still in a training post. And and that's a pretty demanding kind of post you're in with, with a lot of on-call, I expect, and a busy rotor. Fitting that into your, you know, your career must have been quite difficult. It has been, and it has been for everyone involved um, in GASP. It's not just myself. I mean, everyone that takes on these type, this type of project work, it's not quick. It's not easy. It involves buy-in from multiple groups that you wouldn't normally necessarily require buy-in from in, 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 say, certain clinical projects. Um, so it involves a lot of time, and this is time that is not allocated to people. It's you know, especially within a training contract. And what we're pushing for, and especially within consultant contracts, is to is to encourage trusts to give people that time to tackle what is a significant healthcare issue that is going to have significant benefits for trusts and for the NHS um, as a whole. So giving people that time is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to be an obvious thing to do to make clinicians available to talk about sustainability issues, both because obviously we're facing a climate crisis, but also there's an awful lot of savings to be made, aren't there, by behaving in a greener way? Yeah, absolutely. I think the way that we look at most of the changes that we are looking to implement um, and some of our sort of flagship projects um, through GASP are, are all all have a cost-saving element to them. 
there's a couple that will have an initial um, investment, but the return on investment is, is has got a very short horizon with the majority of the, of the projects that we're looking at. And in that, with, with that sort of aim, I'm thinking more over the um, replacing single-use products with reusables. You've got your initial buy of the reusable product, but then you'll see um, in, a, in a couple of years' time that you, you make your money back quite quickly. Um, so I think the way that we need to look at value in our health system, we need to take into account um, three things, and that's its environmental impact, its economic impact, and its social impact, if we're really going to take things forward. And that's something that was described beautifully by the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare in, in their value equation um, um, in their sustainability quality improvement work. Uh, and they call it the triple bottom line. And I, and I think we really do need to start considering that in all of our decisions, whether we're planning a patient pathway or whether we're going forward and procuring a new product. It needs to, we need to consider all three of those um, impacts before we ascertain whether it really is a truly valuable thing to do for our patients. Yes, yes. So it would be interesting just for you to explain a bit about um, something which I hadn't really considered, which was the greenhouse gas implications of anaesthesia. And, and this is something which I learned about from looking at your website. Obviously, anaesthetic gases and their uses it's something of a specialist area could you just explain a bit about the relationship between those gases and global warming well yeah let, let me do one let, let me let me look at this a little bit differently well so firstly i think most people are drawn when we're looking at sustainability into waste into the issue of waste because we see it on a daily basis it's something that got got me involved in this. It's uh, you know it's, it's the gateway into, on, on, onto most people's sustainable healthcare journey. But in reality, waste waste and water make up about five percent of the NHS's carbon footprint. Mm. So we dig a little bit deeper and ask, you know, within my speciality, what what what, are, what is what has another big impact? And anaesthetic gases is definitely something that we've known about for quite some time. So the anaesthetic gases that we use to keep patients asleep. Um, are what we are, what we call volatile gases, and on the largely these days there are three um, volatile gases that we use within the UK, um, and they've been around for quite some time. Um, one is called sevofluorine. Um, it comes in a yellow bottle, and it's about 130 times more warming than carbon dioxide over a period of 100 years, and it stays in the troposphere for about 1.1 year. More recently, the most recent volatile gas that's been introduced is one called desfluorane. And that was brought onto the market because some of its properties um, that made it slightly advantageous over sevofluorine was that it, um, it wore off a little bit quicker. So patients would wake up a bit quicker. And studies would show that that, that is true about two to four minutes um, quicker in some cases. Now, the global warming effect of desfluorane is it's 2,540 times more warming than carbon dioxide over a period of 100 years. So comparing that to sevofluorane 130, this is 2,540 times more warming. It stays in the troposphere, in the atmosphere, for 14 years versus 1.1 year for sevofluorane. So we've got to ask ourselves as users of this drug, well, hang on, is that two to four minutes or it may not be two to four actually i think two to three minutes of difference in wake-up time worth that huge difference in carbon footprint and that huge impact on a greenhouse gas perspective so those are the those, that, 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 that's a question we need to be asking ourselves with with the volatile anesthetics there's other gases that we use um, to carry these volatile um, gases or sometimes used as pain relief as well um, and that's nitrous oxide so nitrous oxide is um, is a drug that is used a lot in um, 
it, 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 you know, it's produced in, um, in the manufacture of fertilizers, in, in the agricultural industry, and um, in, in many other in many other industrial domains. Nitrous oxide is produced. We use a small amount within healthcare, but it is impactful. So nitrous oxide itself is about 310 times more warming than carbon dioxide, and it stays in the troposphere for about 110 to 114 years. So again, that's something that we need to start asking. Well. Is, is it absolutely necessary that we use this drug? And now we'll, we'll see within anaesthesia, its, it's use has dropped quite significantly. Um, and there are certain areas where we're seeing it used more frequently than others. And that's mostly as an analgesic in the form of um, entonox or, or gas and air, people may know it as, um, in, in the obstetric um, for, for labouring women. And it's, and it's a good pain relief and it, it's safe and um, it, it, it's, it's very effective. And we would not want to deny women of good pain relief during labour. But we can ask ourselves, can we manage this gas a little bit better? Um, and there's two ways. Uh, and, and over the last couple of years, there have been some fantastic people. Um, Alifa Shakira is one of them. She's a pharmacist um, who, who's been looking at nitrous oxide use. And she realised that there's a huge gap in some hospitals between what is being used at the user end to what is being supplied. And that either means that we're mismanaging our stock and cylinders are getting out of date or there's leaks within the pipe system within, within the hospital. So there's much more being ordered than is actually documented as being used. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You've also got to remember this is a drug of abuse. You may see those little um, silver canisters lying around the streets. Well, we see them a lot in London. I think pro- probably not around your farm, Will, but well, um, around the, the streets. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. But, um, you know, this, so, so there is a security risk um, associated with, um, with storage of nitrous oxide um, that needs to be taken into consideration. So there is a movement now to shutting down these big nitrous oxide stores and potentially moving to more local supply um, at the point of use. And then we're looking at technology and another way in which we can mitigate this and, uh, and, and deal with these emissions. And there are companies now that are providing systems that will take the exhaled and, um, gas and air or nitrous oxide and break it down into a non-greenhouse gas form. I think it's nitrogen and water. Uh, sorry, nitrogen and oxygen, I think it would be. Um, and that makes it that, that renders it um, not a greenhouse gas effectively. So is that some way of extracting it from the air within the operating theatre? So it's um, so there's two different models. So there's um, currently we have um, within our anaesthetic machines, we have what's called a scavenging system, which draws off all of our anaesthetic gases and carrier gases, be it oxygen, air or nitrous oxide. And at the moment, that just pollutes them out at the top of the hospital. Yes. Um, this system can be fitted in to the scavenging system to collect that nitrous oxide but also for the um, labouring women they can breathe it out into a mask um, the gas and air that they're using and then that can get managed um, either centrally or by a local um, destruction unit and then it cracks it into um, a non-greenhouse gas form um, so that, 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 that's the future I think um, with, with, especially with the gas and air side of things where I don't think there's a, a, a great alternative on, on um, available at the moment and that, that could sort of um, fill, its, fill its space safe, safely. But also with the volatile gases as well, so the, the cedofluorane, desfluorane and isofluorane, there are now technologies that can capture those as well um, and um, recycle them back into their original form and you can sell them back onto the market. And I think they're still waiting for MHRA approval for the for the reuse of that. But I think um, in certain countries like Portugal, they already are reusing it. So that's quite exciting as well. Yes, yes, indeed. 
it's kind of not something that would have sprung to my mind, um, the effect of these gases. But of course, if you consider that, you know, there are probably millions of uh, anaesthetic episodes going on every day around the world. And mm. it, all, it all adds up, doesn't it, to quite a lot, really. Well, um, this is it. There's, there's about three million, I think, in the... I, I could be, I, I, my, my mind, I think, it's about three million anaesthetics in the UK alone a year. Now, not all of these anaesthetics are patients that are asleep. We're doing more and more anaesthetics now under regional or through local techniques with sedation. And they have lower carbon footprints compared to keeping someone asleep with, with the volatile gas. But also there are other ways in which we can keep patients asleep. And one is by, um, maybe your listeners will um, recall a drug called propofol. That was um, unfortunately what led to Michael Jackson's demise. It was a, um, it's a white medication that we inject through the vein that makes patients fall asleep. And it's often used um, to induce anesthesia and get people off to sleep at the start of the operation. But now we're using that, well, for quite some time, we've been using that as the sole anesthesia, as one of the main methods of keeping a patient asleep. So it's called total intravenous anesthesia. And that has a carbon footprint about four orders of magnitude lower than our volatile gases. So it's a much more environmentally friendly choice than using these gases. So we're really trying to encourage more of its use um, as well to try and reduce our carbon footprint. And that's one of the strategies that we're using, along with regional anesthesia um, as well. Yeah. So thinking about the operating theatre environment, we've talked a bit about the recycling of plastic, which you, which is something that you've implemented a project, but and also the gases. The other thing that, of course, um, produces a lot of disposables is um, is the um, is, are the instruments that the surgeons use. And certainly, when I was um, first training to do minor surgery as a GP, uh, we re- used to reuse our our, uh, our instruments, um, forceps and uh, uh, scissors and so on and so forth. So they always used to go in an autoclave after we'd use them and then um, we would use them again. And that hasn't been the case lately because of the issues relating to CJD or mad cow disease. So what can we do about those? Because there's a huge amount of those instruments, uh, certainly in primary care, that go into a bin. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is um, this is probably one of the last things that most people arrive on on their sustainability journey. And it happens to be the biggest part of the pie when we're dividing up the carbon footprints of, of health systems. And that's procurement. It's what we bring into hospital, be it surgical equipment, drugs, supplies. And so everything that we bring into hospital, that makes up a huge part of our carbon footprint. And single use items have flooded health systems um, Led by market forces um, since the um, yeah the, since the CJD issue, the reason why that initially happened is because um, CJD or prions are were difficult to sterilise or, or get get off um, sort of surgical reusable surgical equipment with with the sterilisation um, systems that were in place at the time, but. This huge shift was actually, it, it came on a very poor evidence base. There have been cases of um, patients catching CJD from surgical equipment, and, and a majority of them was from neurosurgical equipment. The majority of those cases actually happened, um, I think it was before the 1970s. Um, but this has still led to huge swathes of other equipment then moving into um, single use. And now it's, it's, it's got as ridiculous where, you know, I'm, they'll be doing a cataract operation and they'll be putting some iodine on the patient's face at the start of the case. 
the swab is obviously single use, but the thing to hold the swab, the bucket that the iodine is, that's all just big chunks of plastic going in the incinerator every time. The surgical equipment that we're using um, in, in, in a lot of the cases will be single use metal equipment. It's lovely, it's sharp, it goes straight in the, um, in the sharp spin, which is destined for an incinerator. And what we need to start realizing is it's not just a waste issue. All of these items, they have embedded emissions associated with them. So if we're looking at the, the environmental impact of, say, a scalpel, we need to look at the iron ore that has been mined, the, the iron ore processing, that material then being turned into a steel product again, that's made into a scalpel, which then gets shipped over to another country for sharpening and packaging and then gets shipped over to the UK. It then gets used, it then gets thrown away and incinerated. And by measuring the carbon footprint or the environmental impact at every single stage across that lifespan of that product, you get an overall carbon footprint of that product. And that's, that's called a life cycle assessment. And there are some incredible people throughout the world now doing life cycle assessments on the medical equipment and medical and medications that we use on a daily basis and that's giving us this information so we can start making decisions and start making the case to move back to reusable um reusable products yes yes so interesting I, the, the other of course thing that's changed in in my lifetime as a gp is of course that we used to use metal um cusco speculums for gynecological examinations and now they're all disposable plastic ones and in a way that you know you can't use the cjd argument with them i don't think um no no you you really can't and and even in areas where um so um for for, for your listeners cjd will show um i'm not an expert on this but my understanding is it shows a preference to certain tissue types am i, am I right well so things like brain neurological tissue eye tissue tonsillar tissue um so those are the sort of areas um where single use um uh, uh, yeah has has some some role but we saw within um, when ent initially moved to single use equipment for tonsillectomies there was a, a huge spike in post tonsillectomy bleeds really? the, equi- the equipment wasn't right but interestingly of um some of the devices that be used to insert breathing tubes when a patient is asleep they're called um, laryngoscopes they um they also go near tonsils, and there was, the, there was a period of time where we were recommended to either to, to use single-use laryngoscopes or um, put a sheath over a reusable laryngoscope. Now, this was based on no evidence. There's never been a case of um, patient-to-patient CJD transmission from contaminated airway equipment. Um, but we've now seen this huge um, shift towards single-use laryngoscope blades. So a laryngoscope, if you're looking at it, is made up of a blade with a light source on the end, and that then clips onto a handle, which has either lithium batteries, a bulb, um, or or, or a connecting to a bulb on the end of the blade. Now, based on a case that happened, um, I'm not sure what year it is, I think it was in the early 2000s or maybe late 90s, where um, a, a, a very sad case where a patient sadly died of laryngeal sepsis, and that was traced back to when a laryngoscope blade used from one patient, uh, sorry, a laryngoscope blade touched the handle of the laryngoscope, that laryngoscope blade was then disposed of and a new blade was then attached onto that handle, which then got some of the bacteria from the handle onto the new blade. And they, they thought that that was the link to, um, to, to, to the contamination. 
Now, I would argue that that was poor sterilization of a handle, and that should be taken incredibly seriously. But I don't think the response to that should be, let's go for a single-use handle. So now what we have, forced by um, the fact that <laughs> probably quite a lot of market influence, we now have single-use laryngoscopes flooding the NHS, where every time a patient gets intubated, um, the handle, the lithium battery, the bulb, the light source, the metallic blade just goes in the bin. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. That's m- madness. Yeah, but of, of course, um, you know, there's, there's a tremendous uh, advantage for the manufacturers of medical equipment to publicise and uh, promote this kind of approach because it must generate an awful lot of business. Yeah, absolutely. The market forces have been strong here. And what we're starting to see now, which is quite interesting, the medical device industry are realising that sustainability is something that we are now valuing and we're taking it into, um, we're considering it when it comes to our procurement decisions. So we're starting to see quite a lot of greenwashing coming out from the market. So you'll see some fantastic recycling streams being set up for certain surgical instruments um, certain surgical devices where while that may feel good and recycling is it's, it's, it's an active process i'm putting something in a special bin it's going to be reused uh, sort of not reused it's going to be recycled or downcycled into something else that makes us feel good then the market knows that and they can still keep supplying us with single-use equipment add on top of that another barrier to move to reusables is um the fact that when you have a single-use piece of kit you are guaranteed a lot of the time that that kit is going to be sharp or the light source is going to be bright. It's going to be a new bit of kit every time. Um, so a lot of the users, you know, the surgeons, the anaesthetists, they like having this. They like having this, this equipment. And, what, and a lot of the old repair services that we used to have in place when we had reusable systems have gone by the wayside. So in order to move back to this reusable thing, so these, these reusable products, we need to make sure that we have sterilization systems set up that can actually deal with a, an increased volume. We need to make sure we have effective repair shops set up that can make sure that we still have good quality equipment because patient safety can't suffer here. Um, and we need to make sure that works if we're actually going to make this shift. So there's a huge mountain that we need to climb. And all the while, we're getting um, large market forces coming up with excuses not to do it and reasons not to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I suppose that there's a there's quite often a, a kind of it's not difficult for them to come up with the idea that perhaps there's some kind of compromise in the quality of care associated with reusing and recycling instruments and so on and so forth that, you know, is insidious. And have there been episodes where you have found that that has been an argument mounted against you? So with with the quality of the, the reusable product? Or the quality of care delivered to patients being compromised by the desire to have a less of an environmental impact? So, I mean, I, I've I've seen products. With, so, looking at the ringoscopes, for example, I know I know um, hospitals that I've worked at before that have had reusable ringoscopes. The issue has been over a period of time, over a life long lifetime, the um, light transmission starts to fail. So that becomes an unsafe product effectively. I don't want to be struggling to put a breathing tube in a, in a neonate and then have a flickering light. That's just not on. Patient safety is, is being compromised there. But if you look at some of the new laryngoscopes on the market in the reusable mar- in the reusable area, sorry, not new reusable laryngoscopes out there, they actually have um, 
products that can actually just replace that one element of the reusable thing on a more frequent basis than having to replace the whole product. So it's cheaper, patient safety is not being affected, and um, it's much lower environmental cost as well. So there's, there's, there's way around it. There's ways around it. Yeah. One of the, the other things that I read about on your website was, was the issue of the uh, propellant gases used in inhalers, which, of course, millions of people use every day for treating asthma and COPD. Um, would you mind just uh, telling us a bit about what, what you know about um, the effects of inhalers on, uh, uh, on greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, absolutely. So here's as anaesthetists thinking we're the ones causing all the damage. Well, it's actually it's, it's the respiratory physicians and the GPs. It's basically the, the GPs, the, isn't it? <laughs> we're, we're responsible for this, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's not at all. It's, but what, as we know, inhalers are a product that are used very frequently for patients with asthma, COPD. And within the inhaler, there is an active ingredient that we need to get to the lungs, to the airways. And that the way that that is delivered commonly is being using what's called a metered dose inhaler and that has a propellant gas in it those gases um, uh, hfcs have a very very potent um, warming effect more so than than, um, desflurane in some cases about three thousand times warming as co2 um, and we're using them a lot we're using them in um, in abundance throughout the uk so initially there's been um, a lot of people looking at greener alternatives and some people may have used them before they're called dry powder inhalers and that requires the user to actually suck up the active ingredient um, as opposed to having um, a propellant driving it or the other option is to have um, a different propellant so things such as water vapor and things like that have have also been um, are also coming out onto the market more interesting though, and this is something that um, some fantastic people at the Greener NHS team are looking at at the moment, is just actually how we manage respiratory care. There's, but let's go back to prevention. We know that prevention is better than a cure, so let's get less people smoking. Let's start looking at air pollution. Let's look at our prescribing practices. Are, are we over-prescribing these products in general? Um, and, and they're looking at it from the bottom up, and I think that's really, really quite smart. Um, and I think that's going to have a significant impact um, uh, impact on foods. Yeah, I know. I mean, w- what's clear sort of, uh, as you talk about this is that most of these issues need a multi-pronged approach. You, you need to not only change medical practice to reduce the, 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 the things that you're using, but to, to use them better and to try to reuse and recycle as much as possible. It's a it's very complex, isn't it? Working on, or uh, you know, it, 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 if you don't have to think about um, the environment or or green measures, uh, it's simple. Once you have to start thinking about carbon footprint, the ways in which you need to tackle it are really diverse, aren't they? And, and involve lo- lots of different people. You've mentioned, you know, both clinicians and and people involved in logistics and supply and procurement and so on. It's uh, it really is complex. Yeah, you, you, collaboration is key here. This isn't something that um, a single entity can can tackle. You need you need to go at it um, a, a, as a group. And and we're really we're really fortunate to be backed up by um, Nick Watts and his amazing team at Greener NHS, who are giving us that support um, from a from a UK health systems perspective. And I think that, that, that that's really really empowering. And hopefully, we're going to start seeing some different decisions made from our central procurement towers and central suppliers within the NHS 
over the next couple of years, and it's essential that we do that. Yeah. Now, from a procurement perspective, one thing that the um, Greener NHS have done, which is going to be incredibly impactful, is their procurement strategy. And that's putting quite a lot back onto our suppliers. It's demanding more from the people that supply goods and services to the NHS. It's asking them to, to create green plans and stick to them and make progress towards them. And if they don't, then they will no longer be suppliers to the NHS. And I think the, the target there is 2030. Now, the knock-on effect of that is going to be significant because it's not just our health system that's procuring from these companies, which are usually multinational conglomerates. It's other health systems as well. So it's going to have a wider effect outside of our um, of our NHS-related emissions, which I think is really powerful. Well, it, one of the things that is notable listening to you talking is working across disciplines, which, of course, is quite rare in the NHS in, in, in my experience. It, we do tend to work slightly in silos. You know, I mean, classically, you know, there isn't an awful lot of overlap between primary care and secondary care. But within hospitals, it would be rare for a clinician to, to talk to a purchasing manager or a, someone involved in, in managing waste, I would think. Whereas you have sort of brought these people together in a new way, which is rather interesting. Well, it's, it's definitely not just me bringing people together. It's, 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 there's many, many people throughout the, throughout the world now that, that, that are recognising that this collaborative approach is, is totally essential. If we're, buy, if we're buying a product, we need to think of everything that touches that product from the procurement, i.e. its cost, where it comes from, its use, its disposal, its safety. You know, there's lots of people that are going to be involved in that one decision. And we can't just put it down to the, the user. Um, it, it just, it, it's inappropriate. And I think what we need to start looking at is if we're going to start making decisions in, in, in every element of the NHS, be it cost-saving, carbon-saving, you need to be able to touch all the, all the areas that are actually going to be impacted by that. And I think especially when we're looking at sustainability, we, we have a bit of a sort of a, a, it's, it's quite it's, it's quite a visual way of thinking about it. There's, there's this brilliant cartoonist um, from Canada, Mackay, M-A-C-K-A-Y, does this um, picture of um, it's, a, it's a little city on an island and you've got this big tidal wave approaching it that says COVID-19 and then up behind it, an even bigger tidal wave that says recession. And then coming up behind that, you've got an even bigger one that says climate crisis. And I think that really sums it up. We've got this huge wave in which we need to tackle. Now, if we are to stand in within our own little harbour, between our own harbour walls of our department and make a couple of ripples and waves, they're not really going to get out there. They're not going to do anything. We need to be collaborating, making big waves hospital-wide, health system-wide, and then internationally, if we're really going to tackle this huge wave that is the climate crisis, we need to really, really start working much more in, in, in tandem with each other, sharing our ideas, sharing our knowledge, if we're going to really have a big impact. Because it goes beyond health systems as well. The climate crisis is a health crisis. For, I mean, think it's about 48 million healthcare workers signed an open letter to the leaders at COP26 describing the climate crisis as the single biggest public health threat facing humanity. I mean, that, those are strong words, single biggest public health threat facing humanity. So we can't, while it's important that we clean up our own house and health contributes to about, we're between four to five 
percent of net emissions worldwide. We need to be doing a lot more and advocating for the patients that we have a duty of care towards when it comes to the other 95% of emissions. We need to be using our voice as healthcare professionals. We need to be talking more about the fact that this is a significant health threat. We've done it with smoking, we've done it with COVID, we've done it with obesity, we've used our voice to spread positive health messages. We need to do the same with the climate crisis. Look at air pollution in London. So many deaths a year in the UK are attributed to air pollution. I think it's about 35,000. If this was contaminated water, we'd be, as a health, health industry, we'd be shouting and screaming about it. Why aren't we doing it about the air that we breathe on a daily basis? We need to be using our voice. We need to be getting out there and talking about it more. Yeah. And I know that one of the things that you do is... Um is you talk to, talk to medical students. Uh, is that right? Uh, just tell us a bit about the, the educational work you do. Yeah, so um, GASP itself is made out of four domains. We have education, quality improvement, advocacy and consulting. And within education, it's about going out there and sharing what we've learned, signposting people to where they can get more information and just trying to get people to a stage where they can talk and make talk on the climate crisis and make decisions on, um, um, you know, make sustainable decisions at work and at home. Now, with medical students, we, we don't just talk to medical students. What, what One thing we realised very quickly, myself and um, a, a fantastic psychiatrist, Jacob Krasnowski, went out on our medical school roadshow a few years ago, and we went to... Um, the University of East Anglia and we spoke and we, we had a, a, a group of um, students um, in a workshop and one thing we realised we, we, we had this great workshop set out we we're going to tell them all about the climate crisis and what sustainability means and we realised after about half an hour that these students they know this they are intelligent they know exactly what the problems are they have a much greener lens than most of the people that most of the clinicians that we usually speak to on a daily basis but the one thing that they're lacking is empowerment and ability to get started on that work. So we called an early break <laughs> on the back of a fag packet, we wrote a new workshop um, and that was just tr trying to get them involved in these projects. And what yes. we're trying to do now at GASP is link medical students that are interested into, um, into sustainable healthcare related projects. They are an incredibly valuable asset and we need to break down the hierarchical structures that we have embedded so deeply within medicine to start recognising them as that. We saw throughout the pandemic, medical students were a huge, huge, huge resource on busy intensive care units, getting stuck in, doing the jobs that healthcare assistants do, working day in, day out. They were working so, so hard along with all of the allied health professionals and teams in the hospital. These aren't people that are just people that should just sit and watch and absorb information. These are people that can come in with a different eye, different time commitments, and a fresh set of knowledge in many cases, and start actively making change. Because we can't wait for them to grow up to be um, registrars, consultants. We can't, we don't have time for that. We need this enthusiastic group of people to get in and start doing the work now. And it'll be great for them because it's a really exciting area of research and improvement. They'll get great CVs um, and they'll do something really positive from from day one. They can they can really start doing that. And you know, we actively encourage medical students to approach us at GASP to, and um, we'll help facilitate them yes. um, with that stuff. Yes, I think the GMC has now made it necessary that um, environment, environmental issues form part of the curriculum for medical training. 
They have, and it, it's difficult. And um, medical syllabi are bloated already. There's mm. so much information that um, needs to be fit in to medical training, and rightly so. And that's why it's a long training pathway. Um, so trying to get sustainability into a curriculum um, is challenging. And the way that I want to see it done is especially when we're looking at clinical care, it's not just having it as a specialist interest. It has to be involved in every single step of the way. This isn't just something that, um, you know, as what, what would Boris Johnson describe it as? Um, people living in hemp-smelling bivouacs, I think it's how he described um, the Extinction Rebellion people. It's not just something that is the hippies that do it. This is something that we have to do on a daily basis. This is, this is a huge aspect of preventative care. So we should be ta- involving that in all of our decision making and teaching it at various different levels of, the, of a curriculum, as opposed to just having it as a, as a sort of standalone module. Yes, yes, that quote from Boris Johnson is interesting. Um, there is a certain extent to which anybody who is perceived to be an environmental activist, whatever their professional background, can often be labelled by the political powers as being someone who is a disruptor and a nuisance. It, this is a problem, I think, isn't it, really? You know, you see groups of doctors uh, and healthcare workers protesting in London and not in a necessarily very obnoxious or violent way, but they are labelled as a mob by certain sectors of the press and and by certain sects of the government yeah and i think their role is absolutely essential in this entire movement i think climate the climate crisis needs to be depoliticized in some respect i don't think it should be the the realms of certain parties every party should be taking this seriously um and you know if i'm speaking to a group of <laughs> people that potentially would be leaning more towards um, one side of the um, political spectrum of it, it's quite quick, you can quite quickly turn it back onto something that concerns them, be it higher insurance rates, increased rates of migration and things like that, mm. things that wouldn't necessarily concern me in my personal political, in my political opinion. But you know, this is something that's going to touch everyone's lives. It's going to make things more expensive. If money is your main focus, it's going to make your standard of living poorer. It's going to make your security situation more more um more tense you know, the, the change in climate is going to affect everyone of every different political spectrum it's not just about um you know this it, it, it isn't sort of in inverted commas a green agenda or a social justice movement or anything like that this is this is a preventative healthcare strategy this is something that we really need to this is how we need to deal with it and it's not just the healthcare it's an economic strategy that we need to take into account the risks the risks associated with our changing climate are huge and you know, insurance companies have been looking at this for years, and you know, it's something that they've taken seriously, and they, they do take seriously. This isn't just something that is that may or may not happen; it is already happening. And with regards to you know, groups like Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain and 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 the like, I think they are an important part of the argument. I think they are they are keeping the discussion at the forefront. People are talking about climate. And they are they are expanding the Overton window to to allow people to have that sort of to, to create that sort of space and discussion. And yes, we there there are certain unfortunate scenarios that we're seeing about people not being able to get to hospital. And I think you know that organisations like this do need to think carefully about their strategy. But I think disruption is is important in this domain i think <laughs> i think we do need to shake things up I, 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 and i and i really salute my my colleagues um in doctors for xr for the incredible work that they're doing and 
some of some of the risks they're putting themselves in um, in order to, to 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 fight for this um, this really important really important cause. But I, I think as, as as healthcare professionals in general, we need to be using our voice more. We are you know, if we look year in year out the. Um, Ipsos MRBI Veracity Index, which goes around people in the UK and asks people, who do you trust more? At the top, it's always nurses, pharmacists and doctors. People listen to our voice. People trust our voice. Why don't we use it more to help mitigate about what is a significant public health threat? It's so important that we do that. No, well, I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And yes, we, we have a responsibility because of our position, but it also, as doctors, as you say, we're, we're trusted and, and we can be seen as apolitical and we have people's best interests at heart. So look, Jonathan, um, you've been very kind to talk to me. It's been really interesting to hear about the work of GASP and it's truly impressive that you've managed to combine this as well as um busy kind of clinical schedule and and training so thank you for what you've been doing and thank you very much for talking to me well it's an absolute pleasure and it's gas wouldn't be what it is without its network and we are who we are because of the people that are in it and i'm incredibly grateful for the enthusiasm and efforts that people have put in over the last six years and i'd encourage anyone in industry outside of industry patients just to get in touch learn more, get join GASP, and just, just help with this mission that is so unbelievably important. Um, and yeah, you'd be more than welcome on, on the team. And the best way to get in touch is, is via the GASP website, I imagine. Yeah, so um, the GASP website, gaspanesthesia.com, um, or we have an email address, gaspanesthesia at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. We're on Instagram. In fact, our Instagram's currently been... Um, taken over by a group of fantastic nurse anaesthetists in um, in Los Angeles, and they're putting out some brilliant content at the moment, so do check that out. Um, and um, yes, there'll be some more um, some more content coming out soon on our website, so do do um, do keep keep your eyes on things. Fantastic, we'll do. Once again, thank you very much, Johnny. No, it's a pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EcoDoc podcast. If you'd like to know more about the EcoDoc podcast, you can email me at ecodocpodcast at gmail.com.